um, this morning we are in uh, Exodus, actually mostly chapter 6 and a little bit of chapter 7. Um, last week I said that we were in a little interlude between, between Moses being called and the plagues starting. Um, we're in a second week of that interlude. I would love to be teaching about the first plague this morning, but that's not the way Exodus is lined up. So one of the benefits of doing expository teaching where you go through uh, the, you, where you're going through the, the book itself is that if God takes more time to get us to the plagues, then we spend more time getting to the plagues. So this week is one more week of preparation for the plagues, partly so that we understand why God is going to do the plagues. But again, we're getting to know who God is, and we're seeing um, Moses develop as a person and as a leader. Um, and there are some interesting passages in this section. There's a genealogy in here, which is kind of interesting that that gets thrown in. Um, as a brief, very brief review, um, we know Moses gets called at the burning bush. He gets introduced, maybe for the first time really, to Yahweh. Um, the God that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God calls him, he's reluctant, but he eventually agrees. Um, he goes and he meets Aaron and they head back to Egypt. And at the end of uh, Exodus 5, at verse 20, I mean, excuse me, the end of Exodus 4, Moses goes back to the people, and one of his fears, I think, is the fear of rejection, and he's not rejected. The people hear what he has to say, they see the signs that God has given him to do, and they, um, they, they believe, and then it says that they worship. So the people of Israel has been sort of this uh, renewal of their faith in, in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, this is a very polytheistic people, Egypt. And the Israelites have been living in there. We don't know what that means. We think when they worshiped God that they're accepting him as the only God. But that may not be the case. They might just be at this point saying, okay, we have a God that cares for us. Um, the rest of the book of Exodus will be the battle between the gods where God is going, not the rest, until they leave Egypt, where God is going to prove himself to be superior to all the gods of Egypt. And not a little superior, vastly superior. Um, then, Moses, and by the way, God had said that that was going to happen. Then, then Moses goes to Pharaoh. And those of you who were here last week or grew up in Sunday school, what's Pharaoh's response? Yeah, why should I care about your God? I don't know Yahweh. And not only that, even if I did know him, I'm not going to listen to him. I'm not going to obey him. And that would be fine because God said that was going to happen, right? God said, you're going to be reject. God, Pharaoh's going to harden his heart, and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to let you go. So he knew that was going to happen. And then the twist comes. What happens next? Pharaoh basically uh, gets draconian with the people, forcing them to make bricks without straw. Well, yeah, make, not giving them straw to make bricks. So they have to go out and they have to find the straw. And all of a sudden, they are working super hard. Maybe people who weren't working as slaves before are now out scrounging. We're told that they spread out throughout the land of Egypt trying to find straw for bricks. And the response is exactly what Pharaoh wanted it to be. Uh, Pharaoh's plan, I think, is to, to show 
to the people that Moses is not the person they should be listening to uh, because they go to Pharaoh and Pharaoh refuses to do anything. And then we end chapter five this way. Um, the people come out and in verse 21, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses' response is, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. And so Moses is despondent, I think partly because he's being rejected again and partly because there's injustice, which he appears to have caused. And Pharaoh, I mean, Moses is despondent. Now, last week we just barely touched on this, this next part. But what I'd like to do is go through chapter 6 and maybe part of chapter 7. If not, we'll get to the plagues next week, the first plague, the plague of the Nile turning to blood. Uh, so start with me in chapter 6, verse 1. A little of this we covered last week, but um, not, not enough to do it justice. <clears throat> so picture where Moses is. He is at the, the bottom. He's ready to quit. He's discouraged with himself and with God. Um, by the way, we talked about this last week. The fact that you're doing exactly what God wants you to do doesn't mean that life goes perfectly. Right? Bad things happen. Things take place that are unexpected. And yet, that doesn't mean it's outside of God's will or it's outside of God's plan. And Moses here is a perfect example of that. So starting in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. <clears throat> I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. <clears throat> so the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Okay, now, I know that there's some repetition in this, 
but it's God who's repeating it. And when God says something several times, it's, it's important. This is what we kind of skipped over last week. Um, let's start, though, when, Pharaoh, when Moses is discouraged, God comes to him and says, okay, Pharaoh, I mean, okay, Moses, now watch what's going to happen. Okay? You are at your wit's end. Nothing you're doing is working. Watch what's going to happen. Um, for with a strong hand, he will send them out, and with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Who's the he there? I don't think so. Let me read it again. Now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand, he will send them out. I'm talking about Pharaoh. Look, Moses, you're, you're, you're trying to get Pharaoh to just release us for three days. You don't understand the plan. Pharaoh will drive them out. They were not asked to leave Egypt. They were told to go. Now, Pharaoh changes his mind, but they're driven out of the land of Egypt. This is something Moses can't even fathom at this point. Uh, you're going to watch this happen. And then there's all sorts of other things that are going to come up that God says, I'm going to do as well. Um, as we go through, if we get to chapter 7. Go ahead, Rod. Yeah. Exactly. Go. Get out. Whatever you do, go. Uh, by the way, I, something was mentioned last week um, by um, Gwen. I was talking with her, Gwen Oscom, and she was saying, you know, it's interesting, not only that, but remember once the Israelites get, why did God increase the burdens on the Israelites? Remember when they get out into uh, the desert, what do they want to do? They want to go back. Um, if they hadn't experienced that other, that more persecution, uh, that desire to go back to slavery would have been even greater. So God is is allowing something really bad to happen here, so that so that at least the people begin to understand this is not what you want to live under. And even then, they want to go back to it. I thought that was an interesting point on Gwen's part. Now, at this point, God renews the covenant. Those of you who were through Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham, right? And then he renews it with Isaac, and he renews it with Jacob. He doesn't renew it with Joseph. And, and God is going to do something here. He is, I, I think this is an important passage. He is going to claim Israel as his own. Now, that's been stated before very briefly. But if you're an Israelite and you have not the benefit of the scriptures, it would be easy to wonder what God's relationship with you was as a people. Um, I, I still go back. God says, I'm going to make a prom, I'm going to make a covenant with Abraham and with his descendants. Well, which one of his descendants? One, right? And I'm going to promise to Isaac, I'm going to make a covenant with you and your descendants. Which descendant? Jacob. Jacob. And now Jacob is told, I will do the same thing for you. I would be wondering, which one of the 12 is it going to be? Right? Which one of the 12 boys? And then God seems to stop working 
for a long period of time. They go into Egypt, life goes on. That's all, for all we know, we don't have any, uh, any uh, word from God to the people. They're living in Egypt, then things turn bad, and now God is going to renew the covenant, but now for the first time, not with Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, but with all of the people of Israel, who's gonna claim them for himself. And he says in verse two, I am the Lord, and we could read that, I am Yahweh, because that's what that capital O-O-R-D, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, that's El Shaddai. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but, my, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land Canaan, the land in which they lived as so sojourners. And now comes the extension. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel. But I wanna get to that in a minute. This verse right here, um, verse three, is one of the most troubling passages in Exodus. Because it says, uh, basically it seems to say that um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not know God other than by the name El Shaddai, and he did not make his name Yahweh known to them. But if you go back in the Old Testament, all through Genesis, we mentioned this before, the word Yahweh is used repeatedly. Do you want to see it? Go back to uh, Genesis chapter uh, 2. And, <clears throat> and the first mention of it is in Genesis 2, 5. It says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God, uh, which would be Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God um, had not caused it to rain on the land. That's the first mention of Yahweh in the Bible. That's pretty early, Genesis chapter two. Um, if you go to Genesis chapter four, and by the way, there's a lot of other places, but all the time before it says the Lord God, now it's going to say, um, uh, in verse four, now Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. So the question is what in the world is taking place when God says, I did not make myself known to them by this name when that name is all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through Genesis. So there's three main interpretations. The reason I'm telling you this is one of them is, is the common view if you are not a conservative Bible scholar. And that is that this is proof that Moses didn't actually write the first five books of the Bible. He may have written part of it, but he didn't write the whole thing. They said there was apparently editors that came back. And so Moses wrote the, 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 the kind of the outline and then there was repeated editing done throughout the years. And there were actually four editors, uh, and it's J-E-P-D, if I remember. Ken, do you remember? Is that the four of them? J stands for Yahweh or Jehovah. So somebody came back in and said, you know what, Moses didn't go do a good enough job of talking about Jehovah, so I'm gonna put Jehovah back in. So wherever you see Yahweh in the Bible up until that point, it's somebody else who came in and put that in. Uh, e stands, I believe, for Elohim. This would have then been a different view of God that gets infused back into it. And then 
The P, I think, stands for priestly, where the priestly things were put in, and that's going to be part of this text as well. And then this one is Deuteronomical. So this one deals with the law. And that these four people came back and edited the book. So when you read this, you're not reading the words of Moses. You're reading the words of four people. And sometimes one verse will have four different editors in it. Okay? Um, Everybody okay with rejecting that view of Scripture? But it all is, this is the proof text right here for that. So this is a a verse that has spawned a a host of heresies. So how do we explain it? We're conservative. We, We assume that Moses knows what he's doing. Uh, there's actually two conservative options. The first one is that because there's no punctuation, this should have been read with a question mark. So let me try that for you. Start at verse 2. God said to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. You see, you put that question mark in there, and it's kind of like, well, of course I made myself known to them. Yeah, I was El Shaddai, but I was Yahweh to them as well, okay? I kind of like that. It's clever. But for whatever reason, most uh, conservative scholars don't hold to that, to that view. What they hold to is that God now is going to reveal himself as Yahweh in a way that they've never seen before. That God is expanding his covenant, and he is going to begin doing works among them that, that they have no way of understanding that God is going to start the process of turning himself from just one God into the only God. And that sets up uh, Exodus, but it also sets up the rest of the Bible. Um, and, and that's why I started saying the covenant was always an individual covenant, although he does say, I will do this for your descendants as well. I, we have to be honest about that. But that, that at this point, they don't know Yahweh. And they don't know him as the God who is going to be the God of Israel. And they don't really even know him as a miracle working God. There's a lot of miracles in Genesis, but, but, um, but it's not like the rest, it's not like the miracles they're gonna see. I mean, obviously there's creation, right? And there's the flood. Somebody come up with another miracle in I mean, every time God speaks to somebody, that's a miracle. But I mean like, you know, parting the Red Sea. Any other miracles in Genesis? The Tower of Babel. Yeah, when God comes down and and um, separates the people, so that's a pretty big, pretty big miracle. Miracles all are, seem to be about creation or judgment, um, but I mean, God stops, sends, an, you know, stops the hand of Abraham when he's trying to, uh, going to kill Isaac. But Genesis isn't filled with a lot of miracles, actually. There's the wrestling with the angel. So let's look at what God says next. Um, he says, um, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land in which they were, they journeyed as sojourners. But now look at the switch that takes place. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So he hears the groanings, and but who is he hearing the groanings of? 
of the people of Israel. Here's their groanings, and he remembers. Remembers his covenant. That's linking Israel with his covenant. The covenant is no longer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the covenant now with his his people. Um, I, I would say that if you were an Israelite, this would be news to you that God is going to treat you the same way he treated Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are now part of this larger covenant that he's made with them, but now it applies to all of you people. All of you are part of his covenant. Uh, The idea to remember the covenant doesn't mean that God forgot it. God never forgets anything, but that now he will begin acting upon it. So we have the same thing when uh, Noah is floating in the boat and it says, and God remembered Noah, he had never forgotten Noah, but it's now time to act. And that's what that means. Remember always means I've made promises. It's now time to fulfill those promises. So I want you to help me with this. Look at all of what God says. And by the way, you know what the most impressive word from five on is? It's the word I. Look at how many times God says what he's going to do, and it has nothing to do with his people. So let's just start. Um, um, He says, I have heard. I mean, that's a tiny little eraser there. We'll get rid of J-E-P-D here too. Um, I have heard the groanings. All right, what's the next I? I have remembered, and that is his covenant, and then what? I am Yahweh, and again, when it's spelled that way, it's actually the personal pronoun for God. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and now what? I will bring you out. Um, from your burdens. He sees the burdens. All right, what's next? I will deliver out of slavery. All right, what's next? I will redeem. And then it says, with an outstretched arm, which means according to his strength and with great acts of judgment. I will redeem through his uh, strength, and this is God's judgment. All right, All right what else? I will, I will take you to be my people. This is an incredible promise to the people of Israel. <coughs> this is extending the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but all of the people all of Abraham's descendants now that are in the land of of Israel. Okay, what else? I will be your God. And finally, um, you shall know um, that I am the Lord your God. 
I will be your God, and this is the first you in here, you will know it. Well, of course they're going to know it because they're going to see the miracles that he's going to do. They're going to watch him. He's going to work with them for generations. And then finally, um, I will bring you into the land I promised. So we wrap it back around. I will bring you into the land. He has to bring them in kicking and screaming. They don't want to go. They want to go back to Egypt. They want all of these things. But this, I think, is what Moses is talking about when he says, or God is talking about when he says, by my name, Yahweh, they didn't know me. Even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I don't think, had a, a feel for what this was. Um, uh, and so this is the extension. And as I stand back and I look at that, uh, is there any part of that that doesn't apply to you? God heard your groanings. Does God remember his covenant with you? Um, did he bring you out? Did he deliver you? Did he redeem you? Did he claim you to be his own? Is he your God? See, all of these things apply to us as well. So when we look at Exodus, this is, this is what we see. Go ahead. Oh, that's kind of interesting, huh? I hadn't thought about that, Rod. That's good. Yeah. And, 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 and I don't know. I, I haven't got a handle on what I'm about to say. So. Okay, so this could be dangerous. All right, okay. Uh, how did the Israelites view God at that point in time? I mean, you know, we're, we're my impression from, from ever since I've been in church till, till now is that those Israelites were... God-fearing uh, people who are waiting on the Lord to deliver them, but now I got a different impression of who they were. Yeah. And uh, so. Yeah, you, you again, you go all the way back. It wasn't until um, the Babylonian captivity that the Israelites truly became monotheistic, and then after that, they were fiercely monotheistic. But the challenge all the way through is they keep running to other gods. They lived in a polytheistic world. Egypt was probably more polytheistic than any of the other nations um, because of where they were located. They synchronized all these other gods. They had, um, they had, we don't even know how many gods they had. And to the Israelites, my guess is that Yahweh was just one other god and relatively ineffective because they're in slavery, right? And even when Moses comes back and God says, I'm going to do something, the slavery just gets, just gets worse. So making these promises and delivering on them is, is God revealing himself as Yahweh in a way that they have never seen before, okay? And look at Moses' response. Moses spoke to, thus to the people of Israel, or actually the people's response, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Um, the people are, burd are burdened with their groanings and their slavery, and they hear this promise and they can't even listen to it. Uh, you see a picture here of God's working in salvation. Um, people come to God because God rescues them. People come to God because He remembers a covenant that He's made. God, God brings us out, He delivers us, and and the person who is in bondage to sin is 
is so beaten down by the slavery and the burden of sin that, that God has to do all of the work, right? Is there any part that the people of Israel are doing here? They don't even believe in him anymore. They won't even listen to him. What they believed, as soon as God seemed to let them down once, that's it. And yet God has not given up. He made a promise and he's going to keep it. That's an amazing passage. Okay, look at the next one. So the Lord says to, to Moses, this is verse 10, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. And God says, go do it anyways. Um, uncircumcised lips is a weird idea, but the idea of uncircumcised in the Old Testament means stubborn. If you have an uncircumcised heart, it's a stubborn heart. Uh, when, the, when, it, when it talks, uses that wording. So what, what Pharaoh, Moses is saying is, I have a stubborn mouth. I want to say something. Some of you know this, right? I want to say it, and it just doesn't come out right. But I want you to see what Moses is doing here. Uh, it, it took me a while of reading this to, to catch this. Maybe some of you are a lot quicker. Do you understand what Moses is saying to God? Yeah, God, here's the reason it's failed. You've got the wrong guy. If I was just more eloquent, Pharaoh would not have made them do bricks without straw. If I could have just spoken a little bit better, I would have convinced them. My mouth is such, Lord, that if you send me in there, look, I'm just going to blow it, and it's going to get worse. So that may seem very humble on Moses' part, but do you understand what he just did? He elevated his role, so where did God's role go? Down here. In fact, Moses is saying, God, I am the most important person in this whole plan. <laughs> I screwed it up. I did something, I went in, I talked, I didn't say the right words, I didn't convince Pharaoh. Now all this problem, and you're really sending me back? And God is looking at it completely reversed, right? Uh, there's that phrase, when God is big, man is small, but when man is big, God is small. Moses has just elevated himself, and in the process, he's just denied all of this. God, because <clears throat> I'm not the man that I should be. There's no way you're going to be able to bring them out. There's no way you're going to be able to deliver them. There's no way you're going to be able to redeem them. There's no way they're going to end up going to the land. They're not going to be your God because I can't speak well enough. And it's a tendency of all of us to elevate ourselves, to not do what God says, not trust. Um, I would say we probably have faced that same thing. Lord, you know, I would talk to that person, but... I'm just going to blow it. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what to say to them. And probably because of that, I'm, 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 you know, they're probably going to reject the gospel and, and go to hell because I said something. So we'll just wait for somebody better. Or uh, God, you feel like God is asking you to do something. I don't want to do it because I'll blow it. That's where Moses is. But you're elevating yourself and your abilities over what God would have for you. So... I found that interesting. It's easy to read right over that and see, but, but Moses wallowing in his self-pity here is really saying to God, you can't do it without me, God. And if you just chose someone better, I told you, choose somebody better. 
and look, it's all happening. And God is going to say, no, it's happening exactly as I promised it. Oh, we got Darla here. We'll do Darla first, because Rod's already spoken. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think about that because I, I think there's, you're talking about at this point a million people there. So Moses would have been, <clears throat> even as an important person, he would have had a pretty small impact, I think. But I'll, I'll have to ponder that one. Okay, go ahead, Rod. We don't, we're almost out of time here. So I just was wondering, uh, as Israelites, they had to have known, I mean, the, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, they would have known those. Would have been passed on to them at that point in time. They had to continue to practice circumcision, didn't you think? They, yeah, they did because Moses, Moses did. About died because of that. Yep. And they were probably still uh, practicing sacrificial uh, uh, offerings. I mean, because that got established clear back between Cain and Abel. Yeah. So uh, they, they're still no god in some fashion. They still have some idea of. Yeah, uh, they do, and Moses did. So there would have been some, but he wouldn't have been the Yahweh that, that they're going to come to know. Okay, we are right out of time, but I want to do something. There's a genealogy, and I don't want to start with that next week. So I'm not going to read through it. I'm going to let you do that, but I want to point out something really interesting. It starts out, well, let's, you know, let's go ahead and do it. It says, uh, these are the, heart of the heads of the father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, and then it gives a whole list of people that we're not going to read. And then um, it gives the sons of Simeon. Everybody remember? It's Reuben, Simeon. Who's next? Levi. Levi. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Kershom, Kohath, Mirai, and so on. And you go on down and it lists all these different people. And if you get to verse 10, it says the sons of Merah, Mali and Mushi, that's a great name. Uh, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of life of Amram being 137. The sons of Ishar, Koath, and so on. And then it tells us in verse 23, Aaron took as his wife um, Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, uh, the sister of Nation, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithmar. And, and you can go on, but um, come down to verse 26. It said, these are, the, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to King, to Pharaoh, spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people 
um, of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. Um, we don't appreciate genealogies, but genealogies are the Bible's way of saying this really happened. There really was a man named Aaron. There really was a man named Moses. They really were born of the line of Levi. No other story would have that type of genealogy in it. But did you catch something? Because doesn't it kind of concern you that Moses at 80 years old is just starting? <laughs> How old does Moses live to? 120. 120. He died young. How old was his dad when his dad died? 137. That's old. Joseph lived to 130. The age spans are still long at this point. It's going to change right now because nobody who goes into the land of Egypt is over eight or 60, right? Because everybody 20 and older, the age spans drop. But Moses comes from that. But this roots this in history. This is why the New Testament begins with a genealogy. That's why genealogies are all through the Old Testament. This, we're not making this up. You want to know who Moses and Aaron are? This is who it is. You can trace it all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam. This is, is history as well as God's story of redemption. So um, I didn't want to start with that genealogy. So um, hopefully we can hold on to some of the other good things out of the passage. But this is our God. This is Yahweh. This is the same God that we know in the New Testament. And God still works in mysterious ways where we don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. And he does it anyway. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. For